Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here today. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. And uh, as you're turning there, I, I, I have to uh, confess that my golf game hasn't been very good lately. I, uh, I played a couple rounds of golf in this last week, and uh, a few of the, the people in this audience can attest to the fact that, that I have what is called uh, a slice. Now, look behind you on the screen if you don't know what a slice is, and you'll see it in just a moment. You see, the, the object of the game of golf is to hit it straight down the fairway. But, of course, I'm the guy that... that see the yellow there? See the yellow uh, indicator? I'm the guy that hits it, and then as it gets about halfway toward its target... It starts veering violently to the right of the fairway and usually ends up in a sand trap or in the rough and I, or out of bounds or in a bush or in a lake, for that matter. And I have to end up somehow fishing out this ball because of my awful, awful slice. Now, I've learned to compensate, though. You see, I know that every time I'm on the tee, I'm going to swing at the ball and it's going to veer out and turn right. So what do I do? I aim left. I set up a little bit left instead of straight. Maybe the pin is a JC down there. And instead of aiming at JC, I aim more towards Dan Livingston walking down the aisle. And I swing at Dan. And that ball, sure enough, it goes straight out in the absolute wrong direction. But sure enough, because of my slice, it curls right back into the center of the fairway. You see, because of my slice, I purposefully, purposefully mishit a, a golf ball so that I can get it to its appropriate target. Because of my slice, I purposefully mishit a golf ball. I purposefully aim in the wrong direction so that I can situate that golf ball in the center of the fairway. In our story today in Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, we are going to be looking at a story in which Jesus Christ is purposefully aiming in the wrong direction. Jesus Christ, in the story of the rich young ruler, His response to this man is going to purposefully lead this man in the wrong direction for just a moment, so that in the end... Jesus can bring him back into the middle of the fairway, right where he wants the man to be. Take a look at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, and notice how Jesus directs the rich young ruler to salvation. It says this in Mark 10:17. Now, as he, uh, Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come, take up the cross and follow Me. But He was sad at Jesus' word. And He went away sorrowful, for He had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, Oh, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at His words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. And Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The title of my message today is Salvation Redirection. Salvation Redirection. How Jesus evangelized the rich young ruler. And we are going to be studying today this portion of Scripture, taking it bit by bit, and seeing how Jesus set this man off on a course in the wrong direction to ultimately bring him back to where Jesus wanted him to be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would guide this time of study, this time of entering into Your Word, Your truth. Lord, Your Spirit is upon this place right now. And I ask that Your Spirit would lead us and guide us. I ask that He would speak through me. And that we together would learn from Jesus' technique in evangelizing and witnessing to the rich young ruler. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn back again to verse 17. Verse 17, it says this, Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came kneeling, uh, excuse me, one came running, knelt before Him and asked Him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now the question is a unique one. Good teacher, what must I, what shall I do or what what, may, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? We can infer at least two things from this question, can't we? Number one, the man is, is, is seeking eternal life. And we haven't defined that quite yet, but he, he's seeking it. That's very clear from this statement. The second thing, based on his question, is that we can infer that the man assumes that he has to do something to inherit eternal life. This suggests the man believes that in some way, shape, or form, the eternal life that he is looking for has to be meritoriously earned. Let me say that again. The eternal life that this man is looking for, in his mind, has to be meritoriously earned by his own human effort. The word inherit there is the Greek word kleronomeo. And it means to gain possession of. To earn. 
St. Hodges speaks to this word and he writes the following comments. He says this. He says, according to common Jewish theology of the time, eternal life was a privilege acquired only by those whom God deemed worthy to have it. The man's choice of the word inherit was a word which the rabbis often used to describe the meritorious acquisition of bliss in the future world. It is no wonder then that the young man thought he must do something to get eternal life. The man sensed that he needed to earn it based on human merit. Now before we cast aside this ancient Jewish theology of eternal life too quickly, we must remember, friends, that aspects, aspects of our eternal salvation are meritoriously earned. Things like crowns, eternal rewards, an opportunity for rulership with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, these are things, these are components of the salvation package that are in fact earned by means of human effort. However, this man thought that the entire package was earned by means of human effort. And that is where he was mistaken. The large problem in first century Jewish theology was that they had assumed that both treasure in heaven and heaven itself were attained by meritorious human effort. They rightly believed they could earn treasure in heaven, but they wrongly believed they could earn heaven itself. Hodges writes in another comment, he says this, very apropos. He says, to have God's life more abundantly, one must first have it. To receive the enrichment of that eternal life as a future reward, one must first accept it as a free gift. The rich young ruler had put the cart before the horse. He asked how to earn life before receiving it. He had inquired about God's rewards before seeking His gift. Jesus has a lot of work to do. This man has come up to Him, knelt down, bowed down. Good teacher, what must I do? What work must I perform? What human effort must I go after to attain to everlasting life? Jesus has a lot of work to do on this man's heart and this man's mind in order to, to help him comprehend the truth of God. And Jesus begins this exchange by zeroing, zeroing in on one comment. The man had called Jesus good teacher. And so Jesus responds in verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. The word me there, it's in the emphatic position in Greek. That means that word me is put all the way at the front of the sentence. Jesus is in effect saying, me? Me? You're calling me good? Are you sure about that? Jesus is rhetorically asking the question, are you sure that I'm good? Because according to Psalm 14, there is none who does good. No, not one. Are you sure I'm good? Jesus asks. Because according to the Scriptures, no one is good but God. And if you believe I am good, what does that tell you about who I am? See, Jesus, friends, is beginning to make this man think long and hard about who Jesus really is. If the man truly believes Jesus is good, 
Jesus is hinting here that the man ought also to believe that Jesus is God. But back to the question at hand. Jesus is beginning to answer this question. He isn't done answering it. The man is asked, what must I do? What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What shall I do that I may gain possession of a rich and abundant experience in the kingdom of God? And verse 19 begins Jesus' answer. Notice what Jesus says in verse 19. To the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now again, I, I reiterate again and again in this text, Jesus is answering the man's question. The man is looking to earn treasure in heaven. He is looking to earn the kingdom. He is looking to earn entrance and inheritance in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is answering the question of the man in the way that He thinks it ought to be answered. And Jesus says, follow the commandments. What must I do? I'll tell you what to do. Jesus, for the time being, is indulging the man's question with full knowledge that the man does not understand that his view of achieving eternal life is inherently flawed. But Jesus is patient with the man. Now, naturally, following Jesus' instructions in excuse me, now naturally following Jesus' instructions in verse 19 is not, not, I reiterate, the way in which a person is saved in the first place. But remember, this man thinks he can earn it. And so Jesus, just for these few moments, friends, Jesus, just in verse 19 and in some of the verses following, He's going to hit a slice. He's going to aim in the wrong direction purposefully so that this man will soon see how far away he is from even entering, let alone inheriting, the kingdom of God. And as Jesus sets him off in the wrong direction, He gives him verse 19. Follow the commands. Isn't that how you enter heaven? Jesus here is indulging the man's misguided beliefs. He points him to the Mosaic Law. He says, try the law. You think you can earn your way to heaven? Okay, let's play that game for a while, shall we? Let's try the law. Let's see if you can earn your way into heaven by means of the law of Moses. Have you obeyed all the law? Verse 20, And the man answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. All these things I have kept from my youth. That's quite a statement. You know, our, our, our natural reaction is to think, oh, he's totally being insincere here, right? This can't, he can't possibly be sincere with this comment. But let us not quickly forget what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 6. He said, Before I came to Christ, with regards to the law, I was blameless. Now, did that mean Paul was without sin? No. Um, Paul was most likely speaking to the fact that he could not think of any willful violation of the Mosaic Law that he had carried out. Paul, before coming to Christ, in Philippians 3.6, says, hey, in regards to the law, I was blameless. 
Not to say he was without sin, but that he had, he had never willfully gone after the Mosaic Law and said, I'm going to defy that. And so perhaps this man, this rich young ruler, is speaking in the same kind of tone as the Apostle Paul does in Philippians 3.6. It was not uncommon in the Jewish culture of that day to suppose that not having committed any willful violations of the Mosaic Law was a sign of being blameless. But of course, as one Ben Witherington put it, not having broken a known law and being innocent or faultless are, of course, two very different things. Not having broken any known law and being innocent or faultless are two very different things. And Jesus here is about to expose that. The man had considered himself to have obeyed the law. He considered himself to be passing the test. On to verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Mark writes that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. He was trying so hard to gain possession of eternal life. And Jesus is here depicted as showing great compassion and love toward the man's mistaken perspective. Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, hey, there's one thing that you lack. There's one thing you're missing. Now, it is here that I've stopped intentionally in our text. Because if Jesus was not hitting a slice, if He was hitting the ball straight down the fairway, as Doug Harrison does, if he was hitting the ball straight on, if he was giving a straight answer, a direct answer, you know what would come after these words, one thing you lack? It would come the words, believe in me. If Jesus were aiming straight, if he were intending to give the man a very direct answer, if he supposed that the man was ready to hear it, was prepared that the ground of his heart was fertile and ready to receive the message of everlasting life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, Jesus would have finished off this one thing you lack with the words, believe in Me. But, friends, this man is far away from understanding that message of everlasting life by faith alone in Christ alone. He is far away from understanding it. Instead, he thinks he's blameless. He thinks he can earn it. He thinks it's his human effort. And so Jesus, instead of hitting the ball straight down the fairway and, says, and saying, believe in Me, instead He hits a slice. He aims in the wrong direction temporarily so that He can show this man how far away in His own perspective of human merit He is from attaining to the Kingdom of God. And so instead of believe in Me, notice what Jesus says. He says this, Go your way. Sell whatever you have. And give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow Me. But the man was sad at his word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Do you seek to earn your way into heaven? Jesus asks him. 
Do you want to gain a prominent position of rulership within God's kingdom? Okay, so be it. Sell everything you own, rich man. Sell everything you own and give away your wealth to the poor. Do this and you will be showered with riches in heaven. Showered with riches in heaven. Of course, while Jesus was issuing this challenge to the rich young ruler, I would argue very very convincingly from the text that he was fully aware the man was not prepared to meet this challenge. Had Jesus known the man was prepared to meet this challenge, he wouldn't have issued this challenge. Jesus was fully aware the man was not prepared to do what Jesus asked him in verse 21. And so, because he knew riches were a God to this man, Jesus, in an attempt to pry open his heart, to pry open the rich man's hardness, to get beneath it, issues him a challenge he knows he cannot fulfill to show him he cannot earn everlasting life with God. And verse 22 says, He was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now wait a minute. Verse 22 says the man was saddened by Jesus' words. Verse 22 says he left the scene with great sorrow. How in the world, how in the world is Jesus' slice here? How in the world has it helped this man? How is it possible that, that not saying, believe in me, could not have been used as a better technique? Why is it that Jesus would shoot so far to the left? Why is it that Jesus would intentionally miss the mark and see that this man had walked away not having come to faith in Him when He had every opportunity to simply say those words to the rich young ruler? Does it not seem that Jesus has pushed the man further away from God? Perhaps at first glance it does. But consider what it meant for this man to walk away. Three points here. Consider what it meant for this man to walk away from Jesus. It meant this. First, he realized that he loved his money more than his desire to inherit God's kingdom. He realized in walking away that he loved his money much more than his desire to inherit God's kingdom. Which means, his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, looks like he had some stipulations. Looks like he had some parameters in mind. And Jesus is exposing those parameters. Number two, he no longer believed himself to be good or blameless. Remember what he said earlier? Hey, I've kept all the law. I've done it all. Since my youth, I'm blameless. Jesus says, oh, you are. Then sell everything you own and give it to the poor and you will be showered with riches. But the man walks away. And in so doing, he realizes, wow, I'm not that good. I'm not that blameless. And third and finally, he no longer believed he was capable of earning eternal life. He no longer believed this. He heard... He heard Jesus' condition. The condition Jesus knew He wouldn't meet. 
But the man, as he heard that condition, said within himself, I can't do that. I'm not capable of that sacrifice. I love my riches too much. And therefore, this man walked away thinking within himself that he was no longer capable of inheriting eternal life. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't these latter two points precisely what precedes the conversion experience of most Christians? Aren't these latter two points, points two and three, precisely what precedes the conversion experience of most, if not all, Christians? Before coming to faith in Christ, did not all of us come to believe that we were not good enough? Before coming to faith in Christ, did not all of us believe that we were not capable on our own merit to earn everlasting life with God? You see, friends, far from pushing this man away from eternal life in the kingdom of God, Jesus' words have brought him that much closer to it. Far from pushing this man away from eternal life in the kingdom of God, Jesus' words have brought this man that much closer to it. He is that much closer to life with God forever because Jesus hit a slice. Now sadly, we don't know what happened to this man. I'm hopeful that Jesus' skillful, skillful words sunk down deep into this man's soul until he was ready to hear about the free gift of everlasting life simply by faith in Jesus. I'm hopeful that that was the case. But surely this man's riches and his wealth were a great obstacle keeping him from understanding the truth of divine salvation. And so, we see Jesus continuing to talk about the discussion of riches in verse 23 and following. Let's take a look at verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, they had been listening in on the conversation, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at Jesus' words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Jesus says entering the kingdom is deterred by two things. It's deterred by many things, I should say. But in this text, He brings up two of them. It's deterred by one, the possession of riches. And it's deterred by two, the trust of in riches. Why is it difficult for a person of wealth to be saved? Why is it difficult for a person who trusts in their wealth to be saved? Well, friends, having lots of money um, can make a person feel very, very independent. Having lots of money can make us feel very self-sufficient. can make us feel very uh, superior to others at times. A rich man or woman might fall victim to the belief that they have no need to rely on anyone else to provide for their needs. For they can buy whatever they want. They can provide for their own needs. But of course, the message of Jesus Christ is that we human beings aren't capable 
of providing for our utmost need. Jesus teaches us that we need Him. Jesus declares that unless we believe in Him for everlasting life, no amount of money, no amount of human effort will do us any good. Money might temporarily preserve our earthly lives, but it cannot buy eternal security. And so Jesus says how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It is, near, it, it, it is nigh impossible for this to occur. These words, uh, based on the comment in verse 26, when the disciples say, who then can be saved? Friends, these words from Jesus were very haunting to the disciples. Very haunting to the disciples. You see, because in the, in the mind of a first century Jew, riches, wealth, money, all those things were an indication of God's blessing upon you. They looked at uh, some of the uh, wealthier persons from the Old Testament, those like Solomon and others, who had great wealth and had great divine favor upon them. And the people of first century Israel thought that if a man was wealthy, that surely meant he had God's favor upon him and was surely, surely one who would enter, inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying here, just the opposite is the case. Those who have riches, it is much more difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God precisely because they trust in their riches. The disciples are flabbergasted and they're thinking in terms of, but riches mean blessing, so who then can be saved? If this rich man can't be saved, what hope is there for the rest of us? What hope is there for the rest of us? And Jesus offers words of comfort in verse 27. He says, Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible. It is impossible to be saved, you might say. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. You see, salvation is not obtainable through human effort. Even the most strenuous effort cannot usher a person into the kingdom of God. It's impossible. Ah, but we're not speaking. Ah, but, but when we speak about eternal life with God, we're not speaking about something that's attained by human effort. We're speaking about a divine transaction between God and man that is received not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Peter and the rest of the disciples were, were undoubtedly shocked. They were in awe of the fact that the, even the rich young ruler, this rich Jewish man, could not earn his way into heaven. When push came to shove, the man was unwilling to let go of his faith in riches and put his faith in Christ. He was unwilling to set aside his wealth and follow Jesus. Peter began to think, well, by contrast, we have done that, he says, within himself. We have done what the rich man was unable to do. And so Peter asks, Peter makes the statement, I should say, in verse 28, in contrast to what the rich man could not do. He says this, and Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you, Jesus. And Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold 
Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. A little bit of a complicated section here that we want to finish up with. Jesus assures Peter here, friends, that while the rich man has not attained to the kingdom of God, the disciples who have sacrificed much will inherit great reward for their life of sacrifice. These rewards will come both in this present life, now in this time, and on in the life to come. Now in verse 19, uh, excuse me, in where Jesus mentions leaving of the house, in verse uh, 29 there, leaving house, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands, for my sake in the Gospels, we need to, we need to isolate in on that for a moment and say, well, what does He mean by that? Have Peter and the other disciples uh, abandoned and neglected their families? Have they given up all their possessions? Have they done these kinds of things? Is that what Jesus is referring to? Uh, no, it's not. Peter uh, had a wife. He most likely had a child. Very likely the child that is referenced in the story uh, just prior to this one. Excuse me, back in uh, Mark 9 in which uh, Lloyd Grimm spoke, it's very possible that the child is Peter's child. Peter had a house. The disciples had a boat. They had fish and tackle based on the latter parts of John. They, they had their possessions. They had their families. It might appear at first glance that Jesus is suggesting that we are to abandon our family for the sake of the ministry, but let me assure you nothing could be further from the truth. Let us not forget as well that just in the last study in Mark, Mark 10, 1-12, we looked at the at Jesus' teaching on divorce. And in that passage, Jesus said very strongly that the marriage union is never to be dissolved. He talked about how the certificate of divorce in Moses' day, we discussed how that was used to actually protect women and children. It enabled them to marry again so that they could find economic support again. Without a man in that day and age, they would have been destitute. They would have been hungry, impoverished. There are numerous Scriptures that speak to the providing for the needs of the family. In particular, the needs of the wife and child. So no, Jesus is not suggesting that we abandon family for the sake of the ministry. But He is suggesting a few things. And I want to bring up this uh, together. We, we always ask, you know, family or ministry? Family or ministry? What, what's the right balance here? Um, I, I, I struggle with this. I deal with this a lot uh, in my day-to-day uh, -day week. And uh, I'm always holding this intention. And I've uh, developed three things here that I, I believe are based on Jesus' words and, and based on the Scripture's teaching about what it means to, to both provide and, 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 and meet the needs of your family, whether husband or wife, and also to go out and to represent Christ in the world. And I have to, I've got three things here to consider. Family versus ministry. Number one, nothing is to be esteemed as high as Jesus Christ in spreading His message to the world. Neither our possessions nor our family are to usurp the attention we have on Christ. Jesus is saying here, I take first priority. 
I take center focus. My ministry takes center focus. However, go on, number two. Our family is to be used as an instrument of the gospel ministry. We ought to foster the perspective that serving the Lord is family time. You know, so often I hear, um, hear people speak, well, I need some family time. I need some family time. And I've been, I've been victim of saying that. I, you know, I need some family time. I need some Casey, me, and Bennett time only. Uh, friends, the picture in the Scriptures is that family time is a part of the ministry. I mean, when you're serving with your family in the work of the Lord, you are having family time. You are having family time. Perhaps it is the most meaningful family time you can possibly do. And later on in November, uh, Tom Bennett is, is developing our, our Faith in Action Sunday, a Sunday in which we are going to go out into the community and serve the needs of people around the, the Orange County region and perhaps uh, to Pastor Taylor's church in Mexico. But, but we're going to give opportunity in some of these places of ministry for the entire family to go. Mom, Dad, two kids, whatever you got. We're going to have work sites, ministry sites, where the whole family can go and serve together. Because, friends, serving the gospel ministry is family time. And that's what Jesus is communicating here. Third, and finally, should the Lord lead us to be involved in a special ministry, perhaps requiring travel or an extended length of stay, our family should encourage our participation and not complain about our temporary absence. Now, I say this within reason. It is not healthy for a husband or wife to go on multiple mission trips and to go overseas and to serve in multiple capacities to the neglect of their family. That's not healthy. That's not biblical. Neither was that, neither was that something that the disciples did. You'll notice they had a period of ministry and then they went back to Capernaum, back to their home base, and they got refreshment. They spent time with their family. We can see that throughout the Gospel of Mark. There is a time to go out and to serve and our family should encourage that and not complain about that within reason. But at the same time, we, we must remember to not neglect our family. So there is this constant balance that we are to keep. And Jesus is alluding to that here in Mark. He's, saying, he's not suggesting that we're to abandon our, our, our spouse and children. No. These words are, are, are meant more in a hyperbolic fashion, more of an exaggeration. He's saying, you disciples have sacrificed much He's telling the disciples and to Peter, your wife and your children, they have sacrificed greatly. And you will be rewarded for that. And they will be rewarded for that. If we abide by this perspective, Jesus has promised that we can expect to see great increase from our life of sacrifice. With every Christian sacrifice comes a more abundant earthly and eternal reward. Go back to the text now. Notice verse 30. The people who have done this, friends, look. Look what they shall receive. They shall receive a hundredfold. A hundredfold now in this time, in this earth. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions. How is it that if we sacrifice in this life, how is it that if we sacrifice time for the work of the ministry in this life that we inherit uh, family members and, and lands and, and possessions. How is it that that's possible? I look at what the Gibsons just said today. Mike and Carrie 
are sacrificing time, money, resources, time with their boys, so that they can go to Haiti and show Christian love to an orphanage and to these two twins whom they dearly love. And in that great expression of sacrifice, what is happening? What is happening? This orphanage is gaining their help, their assistance in buying new land, in building up property. Two orphans are gaining new parents. What is happening? Christian sacrifice is taking place and there's being offered in return a hundredfold return. God is taking that sacrifice and He's blessing it immensely in this earthly life. He's giving them two new children whom I'm, I know they're thrilled to welcome into their family. And I, and I know from our church we can't wait to have them part of this family. That orphanage is gaining expertise and help in, in finding new land, new possessions, friends, new lands, new buildings. Something happens when Christians sacrifice. A reward is returned. And that is not to say that it's easy, the, the reward doesn't come without pain and suffering. Jesus says, hey, it comes with persecutions. It comes with trial. It comes with grief and sorrow. Every time... Uh, I've talk, talked with Mike on a number of occasions about his trips to Haiti, and he says every time he goes over there, he, just, he gets sick to his stomach because of the poverty that he sees. The suffering and the trial, that, that's still there, friends. The persecution, it's still there. But friends, God rewards our sacrifice. The earthly, the earthly reward will be great. But then there is also a heavenly reward. Notice at the end of verse 30. Jesus says, you do all of these things, you're sacrificing for My sake, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now keep in mind, friends, that Jesus is making promises to Peter here. He says, if we set aside all earthly concerns and replace them with the concerns of the Gospel ministry, in the age to come, we will be rewarded with eternal life. Make no mistake, the end of verse 30 is a reward. Eternal life is presented at the end of verse 30 as a reward for faithfulness. You say, now how can that be? I thought we mentioned that eternal life was a gift. It is. It is a gift. But it is such that in the Scriptures, eternal life is used in two senses. And nothing can put this more clearly than what is written in the Nelson Study Bible. A commentary on Romans 2.7 says this, Whenever the New Testament speaks of eternal life as a present possession, something you have now, it is a gift received by faith. But whenever it refers to eternal life as something to be received in the future by those who are already believers, it refers to eternal rewards. Friends, I cannot stress how important it is for you to comprehend this statement. It will transform your view of Scripture if you have not adopted the statement prior to it. You see, eternal life is listed as a future reward in multiple instances in the Scriptures. And we're going to see that in just a moment. And it depends on whether it's speaking of eternal life as a present possession. And if it is, it's a gift. Let's go to, uh, let's go to the next slide here. The Bible uses this in two senses, eternal or everlasting life. Number one, 
present possession of eternal life. John 3.16, present possession. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. They've got it. It's theirs. Romans 6.23 speaks of uh, eternal life as being a gift from God. However, friends, there's also another sense in which the Scriptures speak to eternal life. And this is a future sense. When it's a future acquisition, it's referring to eternal rewards. And I've given you a a number of Scriptures to refer to, including our Mark 10.30. The most prominent one of all, uh, I would point you to Galatians 6.8. Galatians 6.8, there's no other way of reading Galatians 6.8 than to view eternal life as a future reward. So we need to be careful of how the Scriptures are using that phrase and to interpret it accordingly. Those looking for a reward in the kingdom must remember that sacrifice on this earth amounts to greatness in the kingdom. And Jesus says it very clearly, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Um, Some closing thoughts on our study today. Just some, some closing perspective as we close out this time. First, the rich man believed he could earn eternal life. But the kingdom of God must first be received by faith. Only then can a fuller experience of it, rewards, be earned by faithfulness and good works. The man's faulty belief system had put the cart before the horse. Moreover, go on. Though the man was seeking eternal life, Jesus evangelized him without ever directly mentioning how to be saved by faith in Him. Jesus indulged the man's belief that he could earn salvation and proceeded to show him his heir by means of the law. Friends, this is significant. That means to say that Jesus evangelized without using believe in Me. He did. He evangelized without saying to the man, believe in me. Instead, he had a slice. He indulged the man for a moment. Upon hearing from Jesus, the man left the scene with a lesser sense of his own piety and self-worth. He left the scene having come closer to receiving Jesus as Savior, for Jesus had begun to redirect his misguided belief system. And finally, Jesus' dialogue with the rich man should remind us that evangelism must always be contextualized to the situation of the hearer. Believe it or not, blindly reciting John 3.16 isn't always the greatest witnessing technique. We must know our audience. We must know where to redirect their perspective and to think deeply about how to do so. I exhort all of us today to be skillful when we evangelize. Evangelism is a skill. It is a skill to know where the person is in their walk, where the person is in their life, and, and then to use the Scriptures, to, to use their perspective to help them come to a fuller understanding of what it means to receive Jesus by faith alone. Friends, Jesus used redirection. He had a slice. Salvation redirection how Jesus evangelized the rich young ruler. Let us also be skillful in our evangelism and know just where to point the way and how to take them there in witnessing to others about Jesus Christ. Let us pray, shall we? Heavenly Father,
Oh Lord, I, I thank You for this time. I thank You for this study in Your Word. Oh Lord, I've learned a lot from Jesus' technique here, Father. Um, it surprises me that Jesus did not tell the man to believe in Him. But Father, it shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus, in indulging the man for a moment, brought him that much closer to faith. Father, help us in our walk to know how to witness, to know how to redirect people towards salvation. Everyone's different. And Lord, we need help. We need Your Spirit to guide us. We need to be discerning and to think long and hard about where to point them and how to get them there. Father, I pray for each and every one in this room that we would be good witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would evangelize others with skill, that Your Spirit would lead and guide us as we do so. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.